Our scripture reading this evening, we have two texts that we'll turn to, both from Gospels. The first from Matthew chapter 1. We'll read just a few verses from Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. As well, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and then verses 29 to 34. So Matthew 1 and John 1. We'll start in Matthew 1, and we will as well be looking at the lesson from Lord's Day chapter Lord's Day 6. Lord's Day 6 can be found on page 206 in your Forms and Prayers book. Page 206 in your Forms and Prayers book. Before we read from God's Word, let's ask for his blessing. Dear Lord, we pray that you would give to us great understanding, understanding of something admittedly we will not ever fully comprehend, and that is the great mystery of the Incarnation, the great mystery of your dear Son, O Lord Jesus Christ, of the one who is fully God and fully man. And we ask that as we read these texts and seek to understand your, your words teaching on it, that it would give to us great peace and great strength to know that this is our only mediator who has come before us to save us and is well equipped with our nature and is well equipped as being God himself. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we read these texts from these Gospels, we pay attention to the references to his divinity. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 21. She that is Mary will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now if you would turn to John 1, we'll read verses 1 through 14 and then 29 to 34. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I'm, I stopped one verse too early, continuing one verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now if you would turn one page over, verses 29 to 34. The next day he, that is John, saw Jesus coming toward him, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, having read God's word, and again we pay close attention there to the references to his divinity, and particularly what he could only achieve by being man and being divine, by being God. Now we turn to Lord's Day 6. Lord's Day 6 is one of our confessions. Our confessions are an explanation of what God's word teaches, particularly here, what God's word teaches about our mediator and his natures. Question answer 16. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for its sin, but a sinner can never pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he fulfilled it through his own beloved Son. People of God, the mystery of the Incarnation is something wonderful to behold. The deeper you gaze into the Incarnation, the deeper you gaze into and try to understand just what had to happen for our salvation, the greater appreciation you have for what the Lord did. And that's the whole purpose. That's the whole purpose, right? To praise the Lord for what he's done. You admire great craftsmanship, don't we? we? We look at a very impressive building, something that took years to form and, and manufacture. And, and maybe today we don't have that as much. We have a, a lot of industrial looks, which are, are fine. But perhaps if you looked at something that was more made with the, the human hands itself, something that was sculpted and formed and cut by hand and, and created a wonderful display, well, you would sit and you'd gaze at the beauty of it. The beauty of what happened here, well, in a very similar way, that's what we're doing. We're doing this as we ask this question, who, who was our mediator and what did he need to be? And we sit here and we look at, and using the analogy, the manufacturing of the Lord, what he has built in salvation, what he has done in redemption to see the handiwork of our Lord. Now that's certainly not to convey that, that Jesus was in any way manufactured, it's that analogy, the analogy of the richness, the richness of redemption, and even the richness of what Christ did, of what the Son of God did in taking to himself a human nature, a nature that was our own. We talked about that this morning as we looked at Jesus and as a 12-year-old boy in the temple. Well, here we could almost like it was a continuation of this morning's sermon and say, now let's dig deeper into that relationship of these natures and why that was so necessary. 
It took the church a few centuries of heresies to safeguard this biblical truth and this understanding. And we, we should be very grateful for the saints who've gone before and through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives that give to us creeds and confessions that explain God's word, that explain what God's word teaches as we have year after year passed down to us an understanding. This is the truth of God's word. This is the truth of Christ that safeguards us from error that safeguards us from, from not understanding his full humanity and thus losing our Savior, for not understanding his full divinity and thus losing our Savior, for confusing everything about him and so losing our Savior. No, we understand its complexity, though we can't fully grasp it, its depths. We see its beauty. Here we come to an understanding of the atonement in this Lord's Day. And you know that word's not used, that's what's going on here. An explanation of atonement. And what is atonement? The atonement is how we are brought back to, the, to God. The atonement is really a reconciliation and redemption. I tell my catechism students this, if we're to understand what atonement is, you can break the word down. I'm borrowing this from others. This, is, this doesn't originate with me. Atonement, break the word, at one mint. At one mint means becoming back at one with the Lord, meaning being back to the relationship with the Lord. That which was broken has been remade again. That's the atonement. Again, having right relationship with him. And we'll see that as we gaze through this. Now, the catechism uses the term mediator. And that's the point, because we're seeing who's the one to bring about this at one minute. Who's the one to bring about the reconciliation? Well, it is our mediator. What is a mediator, boys and girls? A mediator is one who reconciles, that brings back, that fixes a relationship. One who reconciles two parties that are at odds. This mediator is one who stands between and brings peace to the offended party by entreating that party brings satisfaction and security that the offense will not happen again. That's what a mediator is. He's, he's the go-between. He's the one who stands there and brings, hey, these, these are the ones who are at fault, but I'm representing them. And here, let me tell you what I'm going to do, and I'm, I'm pacifying you who were wronged, and this will never happen again. This relationship is restored, and, and Christ goes that much further and says, by myself, I swear... This will never happen again. Their sin can never take place. Their sins atoned for, redeemed. And we see that as we go through these terms. Now we're going to use some big terms this evening, some terms that we'll even read in God's Word, terms like propitiation and expiation, reconciliation, redemption. What do all those mean? We're going to unpack that. If if you have your bulletin, there's your sermon note insert that has places to fill out the definitions of these things. You might find that helpful as we go through. We're going to explain what that is. We look at our first point this evening. Our mediator, the expiator. Our mediator, the expiator. And this requires a true and righteous man. This is what we see in question and answer 16. What is question and answer 16? Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for its sin, but a sinner can never pay for others. What's going on here? Well, it's going on here behind this text, understanding what the, the, the catechism is saying is expiation. Here's the definition of expiation the covering, cleansing, and removal of our sinful guilt. That is expiation the covering, cleansing, and removal of our sinful 
guilt. Why must the mediator be a true man? Well, to be able to cover the sins of men, he needed to be a man. To be able to cleanse us from our sins, he needed to be a man, and he needed to be a righteous man. We've gone through that the last weeks. We don't need to go into that too much more in depth this time, but rather to say, as we understand the the, the progression through the Heidelberg Catechism and its explanation, we need covering of sin. We need expiation. And in order to cover sins, in order to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, he needed to be a true man, and he needed to be a righteous man, which, as we saw last time, means he must be the Son of God. For only the Son of God could assume our flesh, and only the Son of God, Son of God could live a righteous life. And so why? Why does, why does he need to be a righteous man to, to expiate our sin? Because it was man that sinned. That's the first point. That's the first answer to it. Second, why did the mediator need to be a true and righteous man? That he might be able to die. That's something we haven't pressed as, we haven't looked into as closely. He needed to be man so that he could die. The Son of God not only needed to be man so he could suffer on our behalf, he needed to pay the whole penalty of the law. He needed to be struck down. He needed to pay the price. He needed to go all the way to death. Hebrews 9.22 Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. When we see shedding of blood here, we don't just mean a cut on the hand. We don't just mean a maiming. The shedding of blood here is death, going all the way. So why did our mediator need to be man? Well, he needed to be man to pay for our sin. He needed to be man to be able to die. That's why. And so that is the first question and answer. I don't want to spend much more time on it. Like I said, we've gone over the last few weeks. But now I want to spend more time on what is our second point this evening. Our mediator, the propitiator. Our mediator, the propitiator, requiring a true God. This is question and answer 17. And we're using that big term, but we're using it because God's word itself uses it. That Christ is our propitiation. Well, what is that? Here's what propitiation means. Appeasing the just wrath of God or turning the wrath of God away. Appeasing the just wrath of God or turning the wrath of God away. So you see, in, in expiation, there's, it's more of a focus on man. It's more of a focus on the covering of sin. It's more of what's happening to sin itself. Now, propitiation is something that's happening to God. It's that God's wrath is appeased. It's that he, he can extinguish his wrath by pouring it out on someone. That's propitiation. Not everyone likes that idea. Not everyone likes to think that our mediator, in order for us to be saved, needed to bear God's wrath. You see, they're fine with the idea of expiation or cleansing. They're fine with that idea that, yes, Christ came to this earth and cleansed, covered our sin. That's that's fine. But the idea that he had to bear wrath from the Lord, not everyone likes that, but that is exactly what needed to happen. That's what we see reflected in our confession with what we said in the Heidelberg Catechism, to bear the weight of man's sin, to bear the weight of that, and to bear the weight of the wrath of God, and not be overwhelmed. That is what happens in propitiation, bearing the wrath of of God. And so we have the same thing that our, our sins are expiated. And that requires human 
That requires one to suffer on our behalf from our own number. But propitiation, well, this requires someone clearly divine, someone who has the the strength to bear up under God's wrath. What do we say to those who, who don't want to stomach it? Where do we turn to God's word to say, is it really true? Is it really true that our mediator needed to bear the curse and hell, wrath of God? Well, absolutely. There are many places in God's word where we could turn to answer just that. Turn to the history of God's people. You could think of their time in the Exodus, in Egypt, in the Passover, where there was a lamb that needed to be needed to be struck down, and the blood of that lamb was the only thing that would cover the people, and that has its origins in a judgment on the people of Egypt itself. You see, Egypt was facing the wrath of God. Egypt wouldn't let his people go. Pharaoh wouldn't turn them over. He rejected God. The, The people of Egypt rejected God, so what was to come on them for their own hardness of heart was a wrathful judgment and justice. And you see, the Israelites themselves are are, are those who need to be covered against that. They need the blood of a lamb. And so even in the origins of the very idea of a lamb, and what we read from the Gospel of John, where John says to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Passover one to be struck down and bear wrath. That doesn't make God an unholy being. That makes him just. That makes him holy. You see places like Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement that was peppered with the idea that there was judgment of sin that needed to be dealt with. There was a wrath that was coming against them that they needed to be shielded from. And especially in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the the suffering servant song of the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, the man who was struck, who the Lord beat down, who the Lord judged and placed a curse upon him. And then the very idea that, in God's word, it says, Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus became sin for us. All of that lends itself to that idea. There is wrath, wrath that needs to be born. In order to accomplish this, our mediator needed to be true God, and thus Christ alone. That's what our catechism says. It says, why must he be divine? so that by the power of his divinity he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. That is a really good answer. It's succinct. It's clear. But there's another Reformed confession that I want to turn to now. That's question and answer 38 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. If you're interested, I believe this can be found on page 943 in your hymnals. Question and answer 38 of the Westminster Westminster Larger Catechism says, It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Our mediator needed to be the Son of God himself, and he needed to be man. He needed to be fully God and fully man, and as the Westminster says, first, 
from sinking under the infinite wrath of God. That's the one our catechism gives as well. Sinking under the infinite wrath of God. But then there's another reason. You look at it, give worth. To give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession. It's also why he needed to be the, the, the God. He needed to be God. Give efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession. And then you see another reason given, that he would be able to give his spirit to the church. See, this is what I want to dig in, and here's why. I actually think it's probably easier for us to comprehend why he needed to be man. Maybe this is just me, but it's almost an easier step to make. We get it. We get in our idea of justice. He he had to be a man because man sinned. That, That just makes sense. And then I think we, just on a surface level, would think, yeah, he needed to be divine to bear the weight of sin, but... Let's dig into that, because that's what I don't think we fully comprehend and see why just, just exactly he needed to be God. Why that alone would work. First, there's three points for this. First, our mediator needed to be God so that by the power of his Godhead, he could sustain in his human nature the infinite wrath of God against sin. Now that's what the Westminster says, that's what our catechism says. But how do we understand that? Even if our mediator was, let's just just imagine we could have a righteous man, unstained from Adam's sin. Of course we can't, but let's just imagine we could, who was a mere man. And he was to be our mediator. And all the wrath of God and all the sins of man were placed on this righteous man. Could he bear it? Would he be able to stand or he, would he be like an empty pop can that you step on really hard? We've all done that, right? The, there's no problem in the can. The can is what it is. It's a perfect can. And then you add weight to it, and it can't hold it. It crumples. It flattens. There's nothing left to the can. Even if there was a righteous man that could be offered... Without being divine, without being able to bear the weight of sin, this man wouldn't have endured. That doesn't mean that in this fake scenario it means he would have sinned. It means he would have fallen and died. He wouldn't have been able to live a righteous life. You see, we saw it this morning. Not only did our Redeemer and Mediator need to be God and man, he needed to live the whole life. He needed to bear hell itself for 30-some years before he experienced it, especially on the cross and in the garden. You see, a mere man, could he bear that? No. And so that's what our catechism is getting at here. Why did he need to be divine? So that he could stand when all others would fall. And you know what? He could stand, and he did. That's why he needed to be the Son of God. He needed to be of infinite value and in his own divine nature uphold his human nature, which doesn't confuse the two as they are united in his one person, but through his strength overcome. 
There needed to be one who could die. We said that, right? By assuming a human nature, Jesus could die. But by having the power of his own divinity, by being who he was, he had such power that the grave and its jaws couldn't hold him. And that's what we needed, too. Someone who had a power beyond life and death. Who had power beyond a grave. A mere righteous man couldn't have done this and would have fallen. That's the first reason. Second, it was necessary that the ransom which the Redeemer paid should be of infinite value. Same scenario, if we had a righteous man and he were to die, is that enough? Or, or was more needed? And, and the answer, of course, is more was needed. He needed to make satisfaction. How do you make satisfaction? Making satisfaction requires the dignity of the person making it and the greatness of the punishment. Here's what I mean. If the one making satisfaction does not have the dignity, does not have the worth, does not have the power, does not have the right, it's meaningless. The dignity of the person is required to to bear an infinite weight of sin and the infinite just wrath of God. You needed someone who was dignified enough that his being struck down was, was worth that wasn't just some ordinary person. It was someone so dignified, so holy, so set apart that his satisfaction would merit it. So that's, the first, that's what you need there, but you also need the greatness of the punishment, right? So let's conceive it again. Say you had the most dignified person, but then the punishment wasn't as severe. Well, that itself would be lacking and you'd have no satisfaction. You need the marriage of the two. Someone so righteous, so upright, and so dignified who received the worst of punishments, eternal punishment. And again, that's what we see. We see the dignity of the person, that's obvious. Who possesses more dignity and power than God himself, than the Son of God? Well, no one does. And we also see the severity of that punishment, the greatness of the punishment which Christ endured appears in in that he sustained all the dreadful torments of hell itself, all the wrath of God against sin of the whole world, and he did that in his life. He was able by his divinity, by his dignity, by the greatness of the punishment to bear it even in moment of time. He's not still in hell, or I should say he's he's not still suffering hell. He's not suffering the humiliation anymore. He he accomplished it. Well, that's because he is eternal. He's of eternal value. He bore eternal punishment, and he was able to do all of that on the shoulders of his divine nature. Third, it was necessary that the mediator should be God, that he might give and send the Holy Spirit. And that's one I don't think we think too much of. We aren't too aware of that, yeah, he needed to be God, not only to bear the weight of sin, not only to have an infinite worth and value, he needed to be God so that he would send the Holy Spirit to his church, because without the Holy Spirit, all that he did would never be applied to us. It was through his, his accomplishment and resurrection that then he was able to send to the church the Holy Spirit and says, it's better that I depart and I send to you the Helper. And it was that Spirit that unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through the operation of the Holy Spirit that we are saved and receive the merit of Christ itself. No mere man can send the Spirit. But Jesus can. See, the, the incarnation 
is so rich. Understanding that he was God and man is so rich, so much more deep than what we can do here, because even what we're doing here, even if you're sitting there and you think, oh, this is so complex, this is nothing. And I don't mean that, there, that there's greater things to dig into. What I mean is our feeble minds can't even grasp more than this. It's nothing to the complexity of what our redemption required and who our Lord is. So that's why we see that he is our, our propitiator, the one to bear the wrath of God, and he needed to be God to do just that. And third, our mediator and reconciler and redeemer. This is question and answer 18. Question and answer 18 of the Catechism says, Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man? And here we finally get our answer in the Catechism. Our Lord Jesus Christ, and then notice this, who was given? Who was given for what purpose? For our complete deliverance and righteousness. For our complete deliverance and righteousness. This is getting at the idea of, of reconciliation, of redemption, because a deliverance means full reconciliation. What's reconciliation? Reconciliation is the restoration of a broken fellowship or relationship. The restoration of broken fellowship or relationship. And that is what our Savior, our Mediator, did. And this all was encompassed in redemption. What is redemption? It's the act of saving and being saved from sin. These are the goals of the atonement. And they all follow each other. To find atonement before God or reconciliation and redemption, our sins needed to be covered and cleansed. The wrath of God needed to be propitiated or appeased. We needed the divine God-man to come and bear the weight of sin. Only the Son of God could take on our flesh and be our mediator, not the Father. For the Father is the one who ordains, and the Father is the Father who begets the Son. The Father couldn't do that. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't involved in our redemption. All the tr whenever the Trinity acts, they all act. But of the persons of the Trinity who could take on flesh, well, it's only the Son. It's not the Spirit. He is the only mediator, the only one we could look to. Only the Son can make us sons. That's what we read. Look at John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How could he give that right? The answer is actually pretty simple. It's in his very name. Is he not the Son? Is he not the Son of God? The Son of the Father? Well, he sure is. And so joining with him, having union with Christ, is to be made like Christ. Is to be made sons of God because we are joined to the Son of God. That's why he's able to do it. He gave the right to become children of God. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 5 say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. 
Only Jesus could be our mediator because only he could do just that. Send the Spirit, do all these things. And then we end with the last question. The last question of the Heidelberg Catechism in this Lord's Day. How do you come to know this? How do you come to know this? It's very, very simple. It's quite also profound. Or maybe I should say that's quite important. How do we come to know all this? This gives us a bit of a correction in how we do know things. Someone were to come and and ask you, how do you know that your Savior, this Jesus Christ of, of Nazareth, was God and man and died and saved you and made you sons of God? How do you know? Would we turn to, to arguments? Would we seek to establish the truth that, well, let's start with the existence of God himself. How about that? Let's start with that. Let's prove that God exists. And, then, and now let's prove that you're sinful. And, and let's do one of a number of arguments to reach this point. Well, that's not the way. That's not the answer. See, how do we know this? Well, it's revealed in God's word. How else could we? There is no other way of knowing this. There's no other way of of understanding it than that God would reveal it to us. And it's also by that very truth. There's no greater authority than this. There is no doubt in this. There's, There's no wondering, well, is this true? No, it's certainly true because God revealed it. And the other correction it gives us, so not only does it give us a correction as to how we understand God's word and what we believe, It also corrects our understanding that if we were to say that all God's word isn't about Christ, but here we see that it is. You see, this gospel message was and was revealed in the garden itself, in its beginning, in a promise to Adam and Eve. And it continues all through the pages of Scripture. All of God's word explains this truth. How do you come to know this? Well, the Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own dear, his own beloved son. That answer shows you right there why our Bibles are Old Testaments and New Testaments and not just one or the other. That answer right there shows you why we aren't just Christians that only read the New Testament. We read the whole of God's revealed word because the gospel is on every page of it. It's revealed to us that the Lord Jesus came and and saved us, his people. Whether we realize it or not, this question in the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the most important in the Catechism because it provides the source of it all the source of what we believe. The mystery of the Incarnation is our salvation. It centers around our mediator. It centers around the only one who could expiate, the only one who could propitiate, the only one who could reconcile, the only one who could redeem. We're gazing at things very beautiful, even if a little complex. The beauty there is, you can't even describe it. 
Is there language to describe the love of God who would, who would do this? Can we ever get sick of thinking that God gave himself for us when he was the only one who could? Can we get sick of seeing all of the, the structures of the gospel and how it's revealed and, and how intricate it is and how safe we are because of it? Safe in the arms of our mediator. This is, we don't want to miss it, this is a beautiful step in the confession of our faith. Catechism has been leading us there. Who who can save you? Well, it can't be this, it can't be that. Who must it be? And finally here, who is the Savior? The Lord Jesus Christ. God be praised. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we love hearing this truth and we love seeing the depth the depth of your very savior who you sent to us your savior you raised up for your people and we praise you for the knowledge that you've given through the gospel contained throughout your word that he is that lord jesus christ is fully god fully man able to bear the sins of the world able to deliver us your people and he did this and he never questioned it Jesus, on this earth, you never questioned whether you should. You never backslid and walked away from what was set before you. You always did what was necessary. And you did this not only for the love that you bore for your Father, you did this as well for the love, that you, for the love of those the Father gave to you, for, for the love you have for us. We thank you for this great truth, and we pray that this would be the center of our life and that this gospel would characterize our very existence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.